Let's turn to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. If you by chance are just joining us this morning, you have come in in probably the last oh, 20% or so of the ser- uh, sermon series through the Gospel of Matthew, out of which most of the time we have only spent one or maybe two weeks in each chapter just trying to get the big picture of Matthew's Gospel. But we have come to this major teaching section of Jesus called the Olivet Discourse, and we decided to park here for a few weeks and look at this as one section, which it is, chapter 24, 25, commonly referred to as the Olivet Discourse, because Jesus is teaching these things here during the Passion Week, right before uh, the crucifixion, to his disciples on the Mount of Olives. So that's where we get the understanding, the Olivet Discourse. Uh, This is a highly, especially chapter 24, uh, disagreed upon passage by many Christians throughout the ages on where Jesus is, what Jesus is talking about, what timeline he's referring to. And if you know me at all, or if you've been around here at all for a while, you know I love what is called systematic theology. I love it. Um, I loved it from the first time I went into a seminary class called Systematic Theology uh, 1 or something to that effect, and we started having to read all different types of systematic theology. Systematic theology answers a question. Simply, it's simply this. What does the whole Bible teach about a particular subject? And so there's major headings to systematic theology, like one would be the doctrine of Christ, as an example. What does the whole Bible teach about the Christ? And you're pulling from Old and New Testament, and then you make these statements about it. You come to these conclusions, and you say, that's my theology. And it's very systematized. I like it. It's an organized way of study. Well, what we're in now, in Matthew 24 and 25, is called eschatology. That means the doctrine of last things. Okay, so if you hear me slip out eschatology, that's what it means. Just the doctrine of last things or end times, as we might say. And uh, what you have to do if you're going to develop a theology of end times is you have to pull from all over the Bible. Beginning to the end, all the way Genesis to Revelation and everything in between. And you've got to study passages and their context. And you've got to see what they're saying and what it means and gather all that together. And then you present your conclusions on what you think will happen or how this is all going to play out in the end based on those, that's your theology, that's your eschatology. And what I found to be a very frustrating experience coming into Matthew 24 for the first time really detailed study in it. I had studied in it before. I've had to put together a couple of doctrinal statements in my past and for ordination and such and for my Master of Divinity degree and things. So I've had to do this before But for the first time, I had just weeks to spend time in uh, Matthew 24 and 25 and really started a number of months ago knowing this was on its way and was kind of reading up on it in different things. And I found frustration because I had my eschatology timeline uh, all worked out in my head. And then what what I was trying to do as I went into Matthew 24 is I was trying to make all that fit here. And it became a very frustrating experience. And then I would read from people who had their timeline and they would try to make it fit in there. And they would come to certain passages and I would say, yeah, but that 
that your interpretation of that doesn't make sense. It seems like the only reason you're interpreting that way is because of your timeline already and trying to make it fit. And then what I realized was something very important to understanding Matthew 24 and 25. I mean, remember what I said when we've started this? We're trying to get people to be better readers of Matthew's gospel. That's really the goal. As you're reading it in your daily devotion time, getting a better grasp. I realized this. It wasn't Jesus' intention on the Sermon on the Mount, or uh, Olivet Discourse, it wasn't his intention to give these disciples a clear, concise, chronological outline of end times events. He had no picture of them putting together any kind of chart based on Matthew 24. That wasn't his intention, and it wasn't Matthew's either. So what we need to do then is we need to study it from the perspective of what was Jesus' intention? What is he really trying to get across to his disciples from this particular passage? And sometimes you just have to say, if we want to come to other conclusions, we'll have to look at other passages for that. But that's not his intention. We have to see what Jesus meant here and why Matthew put this particular material into it. This week we have come to the place that really the disciples were waiting for and we should be waiting for too eagerly. And that is where Jesus begins to explain about the return, or better yet, we'll say, appearance of the Son of Man. Because remember, they had no concept that he was leaving for a long period of time. So this is not his intention to give them a detailed outline. He's helping them understand that there's going to be an inter-advent age between the first advent of Christ and the second, what that age is going to be like and how they're supposed to live. That's the most important thing. How are we to live in light of the fact that Christ will return? We have worked our way really through the first 27 or 28 verses of this chapter and we are going to pick up now in verse 29 and I want to read verse... uh, Let's actually begin in verse 21 and read through verse 35. Jesus says, For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand, so if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Now from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. 
So also when you see all these things, you know this, that he is near. At the very gates, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Let's just pause now and ask God to help us understand this. Father, I come before you now, and we are needy of the Spirit's help to understand Jesus' teachings here and to apply them into our lives. And so I come before you and ask for help to teach and to proclaim the truth here and the main points and to explain things and to apply them into our hearts and lives through this message. And so I pray for your help to do that. And your guidance, as I believe you have guided me even through this week as I prepared this message, and I pray that you would continue now to guide me as I present it. And I ask this in the name of Jesus, amen. Now we know that people have, I gave you two main ways of approaching Matthew 24's, uh, Matthew 24. And the first way is this. People will come into Matthew 24 and they will say, this is all about the future. My, meaning, it hasn't, none of this has happened yet. It's all way in the future. Those are people that would say this is probably in reference to Daniel's 70th week, that seven-year Great Tribulation period. So everything in Matthew 24 is dealing with the future and uh, for the Jews and God's dealing with them in this time. And then on the other hand, you have people that come into it and say, this is all in the past. Every aspect of this happened in AD 70, including what we just read about what appears to be the return of Christ. There are some in the all-millennial camp, our brothers and sisters, who believe that happened in AD 70, and it was a heavenly presentation of the Son of Man that you would find in Daniel 7, and he's presented before the Ancient of Days, and to him was given a kingdom that is comprised of all peoples and nations, and that's happening right now. That's why they're called all-millennials, because they, not that they don't believe in a millennium, but they believe the millennium is right now, and that Christ is reigning in heaven with his saints. And so they look at this, this passage, and because they have that in their mind, they go in and they have to, they have to in my opinion, opinion, make something fit that just doesn't seem to fit very well. A natural reading of what we just read is that Christ returns and the whole earth sees him and all of those kinds of things. But what we're doing here at Calvary Bible Church is taking the hybrid position, okay? It'd be like this. Picture Matthew 24 as a as an automobile, and you're on an automobile lot, and you tell the salesman you're looking for a new vehicle, and he brings you over to the cars, and he says, just look at these cars. These are nice cars, and you're going to get good gas mileage on these cars, and, and that. And just pretend those cars are, uh, oh, I don't know, uh, everything is in the past that happened in eighty seventy, and you'd be like, that's your selection for Matthew 24, and you're like, you know what? That's not enough for me. I need a little more than that. And so he says, okay, come on this way. Look at this truck. Look at this awesome massive truck you could lift this truck like my son says I need to lift my truck and you could get lights on it and it's four-wheel drive and all this you could have this truck and you're like that let's picture that as uh, oh I don't know everything happens in Daniel's 70th week here we say that's a little too much for me do you have anything in the middle and he brings you to the SUVs right and you get the car like but also the off-road like four by four okay Matthew 24 is our SUV. (laughs) 
we see both past fulfillment in AD 70 and future fulfillment coming its way. Things that just don't fit in either one neatly, just saying it's all past or all future. Does that make sense? And so we've outlined it like this. Verses 1 and 2, Jesus gives that clear prophecy of the destruction of the temple. You know, and this is really important, friends, because that happened in AD 70. Nobody denies that, and there's no temple there to this day. That was essential in the, in the way God has organized the timelines of, of events, I think, for a new covenant age to have the sacrificial system in the place of sacrifice utterly <laughs> obliterated and left desolate. That had to happen. And so that was what Jesus prophesied. That happened. That prompts the disciples' question in verse 3. When will these things be? That these things there, very clearly, the destruction of the temple. And what will be the sign of your coming of the end of the age? I think they think that's all in the same time. In other words, that's not multiple questions. That's the same thing. When's the destruction of the temple? What, what are you going to do then to usher in the new age? Remember, they didn't understand an inter-advent age. Okay? So Jesus explains to them the general characterization of this age in which we live all the way until the end in verse 14. And it was characterized with the word tribulation. Not just the great tribulation at the end, not just a seven-year period, but the whole thing would be characterized with tribulation. He listed those all. Persecution, false prophets, false Christ, lawlessness, apathy, natural disasters, apostasy, war between the nations, but yet there would be gospel proclamation through this whole time, all the way, all throughout the world, and then the end will come, you see. So verses 4 through 14 just give a general description of that. He talks about the birth pains, that these are the beginning of birth pains in verse 8. So we said that that could mean that these things will keep repeating themselves over and over again at a greater frequency and greater intensity until the arrival of the Christ in the same way you would see a woman going through labor and those pains increase and intensify and become more uh, closer together until the end. That could be what he's referring so that we see in prophecy history all, often repeats itself. Okay? And it could happen more in the end. Verses 15 through 22 then with the abomination of desolation was a warning to flee Jerusalem when its desolation arrives. Jesus in chapter 23 rounds it out. He's standing over Jerusalem. He decries their unwillingness to repent and believe and he says, Behold, your house that is the temple, is left to you desolate. And then just in verse 15, he talks about this abomination that causes desolation, that when it arrives, get out of Jerusalem. And lo and behold, we found that Christians did that very thing when the Roman armies began surrounding Jerusalem and there were the wars and the rumors of the wars and they saw this happening. There were Christians that fled out of Jerusalem in adherence to Jesus' warning to get out. So in part, we see that there was a fulfillment of that uh, abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel in AD 70. And yet, even in the verses we read this morning, it appears as though in this prophecy, history can repeat itself. And especially in God's dealing with the Jews, how many times did he send in people to deal with their obstinance and rebellion? that even now we could see a greater tribulation at the end in which God is dealing with them and there will be another repeat of the abomination of desolation. So if you find yourself in Jerusalem at that time, you better get out of there because its desolation is drawn near. 
And now we have the appearance of the Son of Man in verses 23 through 35. And I'm using that word appearance instead of return just to keep in our minds the idea that the disciples didn't understand there was a leaving in a long period of time and then a returning, okay? It's the appearance of Jesus in power and glory as the promised Son of Man to rule and reign over Israel and all the nations. That's what he's referring to here, I believe. He's starting to answer the question of the disciples. What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Notice not signs, but the sign. They said, what will be the sign of your appearing? And he says in uh, Uh, verse 20, where am I? I lost my place. Oh, verse 30. Then will appear in heaven, notice, the sign of the Son of Man. That's what he's answering in part the question. This is what it's going to look look like. Note, those who believe all 24 was in the past, and I mentioned this with our all-millennial brothers, they would put that return and everything that's happening there in that spiritual arrival of Jesus before the throne. But again, this seems to be an example of taking your prophecy chart and forcing it into the passage. The most natural reading of this passage refers to things that have not happened yet and that will immediately proceed or come at the same time that the Son of Man appears in power and glory. The disciples, of course, were eager for the kingdom to arrive. Do you know these kingdom promises that God gives in both the Old and New Testament, but the ones they had from the Old Testament are quite remarkable promises about this promised age when the Son of Man would come. You have to understand, they have such an eagerness about it because they see how wonderful it's going to be. It's going to be a time of peace and true prosperity, and true righteousness, and happiness, and joy. As a matter of fact, it talks about it in terms of everlasting joy, unimaginable blessedness and joy in this kingdom to come. So we can, we can imagine their excitement about it. That's why they're asking, when will this happen? What will be the sign? Let's make this happen. Let's bring this about. Are we as eager for Jesus to return and bring in his reign of peace and righteousness as they were? Or are we content with life as it is? You know, the mark of a true Christian, or at least a maturing Christian, is one who is increasingly discontent with this world and is increasingly eager for the one to come understanding more and more the Ecclesiastes disillusionment of everything in this world in its state that it's in and realizing there's something far greater to come. We want to be building that eager expectation of the arrival of Christ because we know that when he arrives, it will be wonderful going to be marvelous and it's going to be a time of joy and peace and righteousness that's why jesus taught us to pray in the gospel of matthew thy kingdom come every single day 
Now let's analyze very carefully here some of these verses beginning in verse 29 on the appearance of Jesus and try to describe what it's going to be like bringing it from the verses itself. First of all, notice it's a post-tribulational appearance. It's very clear in verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, etc., and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. It's after, remember how we put this? After all the God-ordained tribulation of this present age in which we live, then when that is over, and when God's purposes have been accomplished for it all in this world, then Christ will return. It's after that tribulation. Now, notice, I'm not, I'm not alluding to any view on the rapture of the church here. Okay? I'm not alluding to any view on a perspective of, oh, is he going to return before the or snatch us up before the rapture or after, mid-trapper, mid-wrath, pre-wrath, post, I don't know. That has nothing to do with what he's teaching here. It has no bearing. What we're talking about is the return of Christ in power and glory to establish his kingdom, and that will happen only after all the God-ordained tribulation of this age, including the tribulation we're living in now, all the way until the great tribulation. All of it's done, then Christ will appear. This is clearly what he's talking about. He's helping, again, the disciples see that much tribulation in this world must happen and take place before it appears so that we're not surprised or taken back. And when suffering enters into your life, you're not surprised or taken back. You're saying, oh yeah, Jesus said, this is how it's supposed to be. And Paul said, I can rejoice not just in the hope of the glory of God, but also in the tribulation that I'm experiencing because God's using it for gospel purposes in my heart and life, you see. It's only after all of it will come will come this time of righteousness and peace. That's why we have to be patient to the end. Because we want it to come in. We want that reign of peace and righteousness to come in, but not yet. Then notice in verses 23 through 27 and also in verse 30 that this is a very public appearance. This becomes important in Jesus' teaching. So, Catch this, beginning again in verse 23. He's talking about, he says this, if anyone says to you, look, here's a Christ, or there he is, don't believe it. There's going to be false Christs and false prophets who arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. I've told you this beforehand, so if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. This is going to be a very public appearance. In verse 30, he says, Then will appear in heaven, where everybody can see it, the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, cooling us in that everybody's going to see this return. This isn't secret. This isn't private. If they had somebody saying, Jesus has already returned, you'd say, no, he hasn't. We would have known. We would have seen it. This is going to be a public display. If somebody says, hey, come out here. He's out here in the wilderness. So come, out, come in this room. Here he is. No, don't believe any of that nonsense. When Jesus returns, you'll know it, and so will everyone else on the planet. This will be a very public appearance. And I love verse 31 because this is really important under this heading. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. 
In other words, no matter where you are, you won't have to come looking for Jesus. You don't have to be in a particular place at a particular time or you're going to miss it. It's not like you've got to catch a plane and be there on time. Otherwise, the, the plane takes off. That's not the idea. Wherever you are, he sends out his angels and they gather up his elect. They gather up his people. Friends, understand that idea of his elect is such a beautiful term because that word his is a possessive pronoun. In other words, he's saying, I will send out my angels to gather my people. You disciples, you don't need to worry about this. You can be in Jerusalem or Timbuktu. It doesn't matter. When I return, I send out my angels. They gather my people from wherever they are. Quite a affirming thought, isn't it? We are His chosen ones. That's the idea. You know, Jesus loved, if you, if you read through the Gospels, you'll notice this. He loves to speak about His people in such a personal and possessive way. These are my people. These are my people. John 10 uh, Graham read this this morning, John 10, verses 14 to 16. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. He was talking to Jews there, and he's referring now to us, Gentiles, most of us anyway. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock and one shepherd. Jew or Gentile, they are mine. And when I return, I will gather them in to myself. You know, some Christians are taken back by that word elect. But I really don't want you to be because God doesn't want you to be. It's it's a term of endearment. And you think about what he just told these disciples is going to happen. The world's going to reject them and hate them. They're even going to be put out. They're not even going to be wanted in their own families He's made that clear. Your own families will turn against you. You're not going to be wanted anywhere. But know this, I want you. I choose you. You're mine. You belong to me. This is supposed to be a word of blessing to the people to know we belong to Jesus Christ. Jesus sends out his angels to find and gather all of his people. They needn't worry about it. I love what Jesus says in John 6, 37 to 40. All that the Father gives me will come to me. By the way, that's why you, how you know you're an elect one, right? That you don't have to worry about that either because if you've come to Jesus, that defines it, you see. There's no worry about it. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. That's us. But raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. His disciples were not to worry. He will come back for his own. This is why he says in John 14, verses 1 through 3, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Trust me, he says. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, catch this, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. 
He sends out his angels to gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. This is supposed to be something that is very encouraging to them and to us. I love the old hymn, Complete in Thee. And the one line in this, I think the author might have had chapter 24 and 25 of Matthew's gospel in mind when he wrote this, Dear Savior, when before thy bar all tribes and tongues assembled are, among the chosen I shall be at thy right hand complete in thee. Friends, Jesus never wants his people doubting his love for them, his perfect work for them, his salvation for them that is complete and full for you. He wants you to be assured of that. So this is going to be a very public appearance and we won't miss it. And then it's a powerful appearance in verse 30. It's a powerful appearance. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. It's going to be quite a sight. And really what those disciples had been waiting for Jesus to shine forth in all his power and in all his glory. This is what they wanted him to present himself to the world. And one day he says, that's coming, I will. And this power and glory that is displayed here in Matthew 24 is quite different. The power and glory displayed in the second advent is quite different from that in the first advent, isn't it? I mean, we're coming in on the advent season Christmas time, we read Matthew 1 and 2 and uh, in Luke's gospel, you read about the birth of Christ. What a humble entrance on the first advent. Born in a manger to parents in poverty. Nobody even knew what was going on. Nobody even knew what happened except for a select few, the shepherds, the, the magi, Joseph and Mary. But this next time, it won't be that way, will it? Not only that, we just studied in chapter 21 what we call the triumphal entry where Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, an animal of burden, used for work, very humble, offering peace. His glory veiled. His power reserved. And he goes in not to rule and reign but to be rejected and crucified but not this next time. The return of the Son of Man, when He comes again, will not be quiet. It won't be humble, not in the sense of the first appearance. It will be powerful and glorious. Nothing reserved from Christ. All His power, all His glory. And He comes not to go through the cross. He comes to rule and reign and to judge and make war. You know, I'd ask you to turn, turn to Revelation 19. It's so easy to find. And look at the picture of this. The book of Revelation, chapter 19, beginning in verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. Now contrast this with the first heaven. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems that he has and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. By the way, don't come up to me afterwards and say, "What do you think that name is?" 
He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, while following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. That is the demonstration of the return of the Son of Man, His appearance in power and great glory. For those in Christ, it'll be a wonderful thing. You'll be caught up to meet Him in the air, Paul says. Or as Paul says, in the twinkling of an eye, transform with Him. We're eager for this arrival. The disciples were eager for this arrival. And they should be because they have all the forever kingdom promises in Christ to look to and look forward to. But for everyone else who has rejected him, it's not the case. I think that's why he says in verse 30, when this happens, look what, what it says. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. It'll be a different experience for them. All the tribes of the earth, not just the tribes of Israel, all the tribes of the earth are going to see Jesus coming and they're going to mourn. Now, it is possible because Zechariah makes a reference to Jews seeing the one they crucified and mourning over him, possibly. But I think more probably what we're seeing here is the terror and shock of a world who has rejected Christ because remember he said back in verse 14, the gospel would go about to all the world. By this time, This gospel proclamation is actually picked up and been brought to nations and rejected probably by the masses. And now they see him coming in all his power and glory to judge and make war. And the thought is, it was all true. I rejected it, but it was true. Here it is. Would that cause some mourning, do you think? It's terrifying. And again, it just imprints upon us this necessity. Am I ready for his return? Am I ready for his return? Psalm chapter 2, verses 8 through 12. Ask of me, says God to to his son, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son that is embracing by faith, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled, but blessed are all who take refuge in him. Can you think of an event in world history that is going to cause two most polar opposite reactions in human beings? In the one, his people, in those who have trusted in Christ and found refuge in him, nothing but joy and celebration. But to those who have rejected him, nothing but judgment and fear and eternal mourning. Take refuge in Jesus Christ. And then I just want to spend just a couple minutes here, verses 32 to 35, just explaining a couple things and then we'll bring it to a conclusion for this week anyway. The heading I would put over verses 32 to 35 would be this. Jesus sets the expectation of the imminence of his return. Have you ever heard that word, imminence? 
theological term in this connection that means he could return at any time so that always we are to be expecting his arrival. That's exactly, by the way, where he's headed in the verses we'll look more specifically at next week, 36 through the end of the chapter, is that he says in verse 40, or 42, rather, therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Or verse 44, therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect, you see. That's why if somebody says, I really expect the Lord's going to return soon, and I'm like, oh, well, probably won't happen then. That's a joke, by the way. But the point is, Jesus is headed to getting them ready for an unexpected return, okay? Expected yet unexpected, all right? We'll talk more about that next week. But he's setting that that in verses 32 to 35. He says, from the fig tree learn its lesson. The underlying word there is parable. From the fig tree learn its lesson or parable. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. Okay, so... He's using a very practical illustration and pointing to it. He says, look at this fig tree. And the fig tree doesn't have any picture here of Israel. That can happen in other passages, but not here. And the reason is, is because Luke records that Jesus actually said, consider the fig tree and all the other trees. He's just saying, look at trees, okay? How when it comes into the springtime and they begin to bud out and you see leaves, you know for sure that summer is coming, that it's near, Okay, so that's just a very general, practical thing. When you see these things, they are like the leaves on a tree. You know summer is near. That's why he says in verse 33, also when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates, right? The big question, though, that we need to answer, at least try to and come to what I call a humble conclusion, okay? What are these things? He says, so also when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. What are these things? As you might expect, there are a number of various and sundry answers to that very question, depending on who you ask. But what we know he can't be referring to is what he just described in the appearance of the Son of Man. That can't be among the these things. Because he's saying, then he would be saying, when you see these things happening, meaning the Son of Man coming on power and great glory, then know that the Son of Man is near at the very gates. That doesn't make any sense. So we have to eliminate the actual appearance of it. What he's getting people ready is to be expecting and awaiting really an unexpected return or timing of the return. So what are these things? Go back up to verse 3. When this phrase, these things, shows up first, he says, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? Verse 8 again, although our English translation doesn't have things, the idea is still the same. All these are the beginning of the birth pains. In other words, these things would include then, humble conclusion right now, okay, they would include the destruction of the temple, In A.D. 70, that's what was prophesied in verses 1 and 2. They said, when will these things be? So we know it would have to be, this isn't going to happen or return until the temple is destroyed. Then I would argue that these things would include 
all of the other characteristics of this present age. These things. So when you see all these things happening, false prophets, false Christs, apathy, apostasy, persecution, natural disasters. You see all these things happening? The destruction of the temples happened, then you know he's near. At the very gates. In other words, I think that helps us understand what he means when he says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now, this generation is disputed among a lot of different people, so I'm not claiming to to be absolutely right on this, but here's what I think. I think this generation means the generation he's talking to. That makes the most, that's the most natural reading for me, that it's not a future generation. It's not referring to a race of people like the Jews. Those things might be true in themselves. But this generation is the one he's talking to. And what he's saying is, in this generation, all these things will begin to take place. And then from then on, you're going to know that the end is near. He's at the very gate, so be ready. You're not really sitting there waiting for any other big event, though there may be some. And we could find those in other passages. The idea is, now be ready. All these things took place in this generation, the one that was then. You know, there was a word for that in the Greek. If he meant that generation, like a generation that wasn't theirs, he could have said that. But he said this. And I think the most natural reading is, all the things that needed to happen, friends, and here's the point. All the things that needed to happen to really usher in the end of the age and the recurrent of Christ have happened, so be ready. The leaves abutted. We've been in late spring now for 2,000 years. Summer is near. It's about to happen. He's at the very gates. He's coming in any time. Be ready. Jesus set the expectation for the disciples and for us and every generation until the return of Christ, that theirs could be the generation. This could be the time. We must be ready. And did you know, church, in church history, every generation of Christian in every part of the world from the time of the apostles till now thought theirs could be the last generation. Did you know that? Every single one without exception were eagerly anticipating. That's because Jesus is a genius in the way he words things to set an expectation so that we would be we would be ready. I like to use the illustration of a play. Have you ever been to a play or maybe an orchestra? And they have an intermission, right? And they close the curtains and they're getting all the stage things ready behind those. And that's your cue to use the restroom or go to concessions or go make a phone call or whatever you need to do, right? And, and, uh, but you know now that it's about to start. You know the curtain is about to open at any time when they dim the lights, Right? They start dimming the lights in the auditorium. You're like, oh man, I better get in my seat. And you may sit in that seat for five seconds and all of a sudden, or you may sit in that seat for 10, 15 minutes and you're like, man, I could have gotten up and gone to the bathroom. I I wish I had done that. See what I'm saying? Right now, the stage has been set and at any time, the curtain could be drawn back and Christ could appear. This is the way the apostles talked about it. First Peter 4, 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. James 5, 8. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming. The Lord is at hand or near. 
1 John 2.18, children, it is the last hour. And you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it's the last hour. Remember, he said, there'd be many false Christs. He said, there are. That's why we know it's the last hour, you see. Romans 13.12, the night is far gone. The day is at hand, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Dawn is about to break forth. And you'll notice what they do in each of those passages. They're encouraging believers, saying his return is near, so live like it, you see. See, if your eschatology doesn't affect the way you live today, then all the study you put into it was a waste of your time. Jesus is way more concerned about your life today and how you live in light of his return than he is about you being right about the particulars of his return. Way more concerned by that. If you are confident about your millennial position, but your marriage is a sinful wreck, then your position is useless. If you are confident of a pre-tribulational rapture or any other view, but you're not fighting your pornography addiction, then your pre-trib rapture view is a waste of time. If you're confident in your futurist understanding the view of Revelation and you know what the giant locusts are that crawl out of the sea and sting everybody on the earth, but you don't want to share the gospel with the lost, then you're wasting your time. If you can explain clearly the distinction between the coming judgments, the believers, the sheep and the goats, the bema seat judgment, all those, and you can articulate those, but you show no mercy or kindness yourself to others, and you're a jerk, then when you stand in the judgment, you're going to be greatly surprised at what Jesus says to you. In other words, if the return of Christ to judge doesn't affect the way you live, you really don't believe it anyway. Any of our study in theology and eschatology too, it should increase your love for Jesus and his people and the lost. It should decrease your love of this world. It should move you to live a life of holiness and sacrifice for the glory of God and the good of others. If it isn't, then quit studying about it. Return to a pure and simple study of the gospel of Jesus and how in love for you, he lived for you. In love for you, he died for you and rose again. Study every aspect about that gospel until your heart melts with love for him and for other people. Till you begin bearing the fruit of the Spirit. Just spend time staring at the attributes of Jesus so that the Spirit can be transforming you from one degree of glory to the next into His image. That's way more important than you getting your timeline chart down. Charles Spurgeon warned that sometimes those who become too obsessed with end times events love to study it because it's so exciting and fascinating. But he warned that oftentimes believers are doing that because they've lost interest in the gospel. That has become boring to them. So study the end times, friends, but do it for an increase in passion for God and for his truth and for other people. May we be a kind of church that does that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for helping us. We believe you have. We may have lots of questions. about how Matthew 24 applies to other parts of Scripture and in our systematic theology generally, and that's fine.
But Lord, we really want to mainly see you, grow in love for you, and then we want to live in light of your return, so help us to do that even today, even today. May we be thinking about the fact that you are coming again and that we want to be ready and we want to be faithful. Help us with this. In Jesus' name, amen.